Welcome back to the Space Biff Spacecast. As always, I am your host, Dan Thoreau, and today I am joined by a very interesting special guest. Um, this is the designer of one of the more uh, opinionated games of the year, mm. and maybe we'll get into that. This is, of course, James Naylor. James, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Dan. Excellent. Good, good. So how, how has your day been going? Uh, it's been good. It's been good. I, I didn't do very much this morning. I was recovering from drinking a little bit too much last night. Uh, and then I spent the rest of the day battling with <laughs> Shopify for our new, uh, Naylor Games online store. So, uh, it's been one of those kind of days just entrenched in software doing software things. My, I'm recovering from Thanksgiving. Ah, s- still. So yes. it must have been a pretty, pretty substantial one, I guess. Yes, it was two days ago, and it was very big. I learned a new fact of, um, from my uh, plumber friend mm. that, you know, the, the day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday. Uh, indeed. Which is when all the stores open up and they have sales or, or something. I don't know. I don't go. Um, but my plumber friend says that plumbers call it Brown Friday. <laughs> because of the backup toilets? <laughs> he, did, he didn't explain why. <laughs> But I have some guesses. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, I won't speculate on. I won't. I won't share those guesses with our audience. <laughs> so, James, why don't we get to know you a little bit before we jump into this game that you just recently released? Um, so, I think that most people will only know you uh, from this game. But of course, you are a man with a complex history behind you. Why oh, you- I like to think so. Yeah. Why, why don't you share some of that history? So what is it that you do? So, uh, well, I like, to, I like to tell people now that I, I make board games is what I do. When, I, when anyone asks if, I have, like, <laughs> if I've got a date or something and that question comes up, that's what I say. It's normally a pretty good one to say because almost no one else will say that. So yeah. I feel like a lot of people I meet in London, if I tell them, they're expecting me to say something like, oh, I work in technology or I work in finance, something like that. And I say, I make board games. And it's a great conversation starter. Yeah. Um, but actually, that that is obviously a very recent thing for me. So I sort of started the journey to publish Magnate and uh, potentially more games beyond that, which I wasn't entirely sure if I wanted to at the beginning of this process, in early 2018. So um, uh, much before that, obviously, I had a, an entire career in software. So I was working in technology and specifically in the area of um, advertising technology. So uh, I stepped down at the end of 2017 as the head of a of the product and engineering department of, of an advertising company that was kind of multinational uh, startup. And uh, and, and I'd, I'd been doing that for quite a few years, working in a few different companies in a kind of product management primary role, and then kind of moving more into engineering as my career went on. Um, and I was sort of got to this point of like, well, you know, I'd really like a bit of a break from this. And uh, I, you know, I'd also like to do something that feels a little bit more rewarding. Because online advertising is intellectually a fascinating challenge. The, mm-hmm. the, the sort of technical things involved and, you know, the, the, the meeting of, of kind of product and technology in, in that space is, is actually is really fascinating. The way sure. that online ads work, that the huge complexity of that ecosystem is for someone who does like systems, a, a fascinating space to work in. Sure. But, uh, but, but not one that feels great. So uh, I think you, you can make it, the, the best case for advertising you can make is something along the lines of, look, overall, it contributes to the efficiency of market economics, and sure. that overall is more likely to generate a set of goods, for example, overall and spillover effects with society that are positive if you believe they're positive. And that's, that's great, Mole, but it's like a very abstracted form of positive contribution to the world that, that is a highly debatable academic one, whereas... When you watch someone play a game that you've made and they just have a lovely time with it, there's something just so wonderfully tangible about that that it just feels like a lot more instantly and, and clearly rewarding. Yeah, I can see how that would be. So you des- you started designing games in 2018. Is that what you said? Uh, well, that's a very good question. So actually, actually I didn't start... My actually, Well, actually, the start, I started designing games quite a lot before that. I probably... I was designing some games as a child. So uh, I think my first ever board game, uh, I tried to create... Uh, oh, God, I don't know what it was now. But it was some kind of sort of game where you moved these monsters around a board. I mean, you know, like, like children and actually many adults who've not played any other games, my very much um, frame of reference entirely were game were roll-and-move games. 
So I think I, there were these kind of, <laughs> in the, I don't know, they were presumably available in the US as well. In, in Britain, there were these like these little like neon monster things that you could buy. They were like insects that were like mutated insects that also had like guns on their back and stuff like this. And okay. I, I remembered making a game with these, the, my collection of these when I was like, uh, yeah, when I would have, must've been about six or seven, probably. And that was probably the first ever bit of game design that I did. I, I'm not gonna claim right now it was classic, but um, but <laughs> great components. And that very much has yeah. continued to, today as an interest of mine. Um, uh, and then I actually made a board game later on. I was a bit older. I, I got really into English cathedrals. So I decided to make a board game in which you would play a kind of uh, a bishop or something, and you had to sort of like build the best diocese, and you had to build a, a fancy cathedral in your diocese. Sure. Uh, that one didn't, that one didn't get quite so far, but it was it was another another kind of thing I did, and I, and I kept playing with these sort of things. I did a lot of like a little bit of D and D as well when I was like high school. Sure. So I uh, did a bit of that, but I don't think I really seriously started in a kind of very consciously in a kind of modern way until about twenty eleven. And that was a few years after I'd kind of got into hobby board games, kind of rediscovered them. I think that classic arc a lot, a lot of people have. Played board games as children, I think particularly for my generation. You play board games as children, uh, you know, uh, that, that's great and all. Then you move over to video games. You forget board games ever existed. And then if right. you're lucky, maybe you rediscover them at university with a few friends. And uh, a, a very good friend of mine, Edward Wilson, uh, he... Uh, introduced me to, I think it was either Carcassonne or Ticket to Ride, I can't remember now, in about 2007. Okay. And it was a bit of a revelation because I was like, oh my God, this, this game's just really good. These are just, just, just really good games. Yeah. And, uh, and I ended up playing a few of these different different titles, early things. I think Catan wasn't actually so keen on that that to begin with, but um, a, a few of these titles. And I and, I ended up buying. I was so into this. I thought, oh, I've got, I've got to check this out. And I went down to the. Uh, it was this is, this is at university at the time, and I went down to a little board game shop in Oxford, where there, which I think is still there on the Cowley Road. Where it was the first time I'd seen an actual hobby board game store because there were wow. there are still very few of those in the UK, and at this point, vanishingly few. And I think it was it was run by a couple, an elderly couple who owned the whole building, so it like, didn't really matter whether or not it was profitable. It just sure. mattered that they could just they could just share their love of games with the world with this building that they owned and just a little hobby shop. And I saw in and I saw on the shelf uh, a copy of what then was uh, licensed as Railroad Tycoon, which I believe now is only known as Railways of the World, the Martin Wallace game. Sure. And uh, it was first released under this, and I think they lost the license very quickly, which is a real pity because actually the production values went really down after they lost the license as well. And the original version of the game just looks way better than anything that Eagle Games produced later. Um, and and I, I bought this game, took it home, played it with Ed, and just fell in love with it. And, and that was the kind of big moment for me of, of rediscovering modern games. And then as I'm a little bit want to do, I guess, uh, the moment I discovered this art form, I wanted to participate in it. And so within a few years of that, I was, I was designing things uh, by about 2010, 2011. What did your first efforts look like? That's a good question. So I, I designed a few different kind of concepts. One of them uh, was uh, I was very I think like a lot of people got inspired by other IP. So I and especially like I feel when you're younger you do this quite a lot as well. I wanted to make a board game just because I thought it would have an absurdly long title of um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, the board game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and I kind of came up with this thing that was going to be like a a sort of asymmetric game in which one player would be the Robert Ford player. Um, no, the Jesse James player. The other one would kind of be the, the the sort of federal police, effectively. And your goal was to get Robert Ford, uh, sorry, Jesse James, on his own with one traitorous one of his colleagues. And the moment that he was alone with them, he would be killed and you would win the game. And he was trying mm -hmm. to survive X number of rounds, something like that. So I sort of came up with this idea, designed a, kind of a few, playtested a very little bit. Um, uh, and didn't get it, didn't, it didn't take it much further, to be honest. But quite early on, I ended up coming up with Magnate. So that I actually wrote the first rules for in October 2011. Oh, okay. And, and that uh, quickly became, I was like, oh, I really like this idea. And it feels like there's something really there in terms of um, uh, just what thing, something that doesn't quite exist in market. And, and to be honest with you, I actually thought 
in the intervening years, it was almost certain something would come out that would be like it. And actually, I was quite surprised that it didn't in the meantime, quite <laughs> quite like that. And I thought I really wanted to pursue this because it was wonderfully tactile. I could, you know, I could when I was making the prototype, I gave me an excuse to make buildings out of Lego. So that's great. And then uh, I can sit on the carpet and be like, no, honestly, honestly, mum and dad, I, I, I know I'm, what I don't know what, what 25 at this point, but uh, this is actually a totally legit reason to be sitting on the carpet playing Lego and building these little buildings. And um, uh, and, and, I, and I just felt like it, it, it could be something, this kind of more rich 3D, true city builder game uh, that had this sort of economic element that just, I, I thought there was something there. And, and for me, actually... Uh, which some people were surprised by, by, would deliberately could deliberately be a kind of contemporary monopoly, and that's exactly what I was partly inspired by. It. So, um, in some ways, this is like the worst designer story ever because it, you know, I feel like that's what a lot of people do when they first get into board games: is I'm going to make the new monopoly. Um, but I thought, <laughs> no, actually, I, actually, I think I can, but but by making it really, really different to that, um, right. very much the, the the spirit and the theme perhaps in some sense, rather than any of the mechanical ideas, which I very much left in the rearview mirror. So, um, uh, yeah, and that, and that was, and then after that, I spent a lot of time um, uh, developing that concept more than any other. And there are loads of other ideas I've got. I think there must be a list as long as your arm of different, probably about 10 to 20 different projects I've got knocking around um, sure. in various states of completion. But that was the only one that I, I would find myself keep coming back to. Um, and I had this little regular tradition where every New Year's Eve, um, myself and a few friends would get together and we would play a version of Magnate. And um, it, inevitably, it went way too long. It would always last like four hours and we'd all have to just agree to stop and people would go home. And for some reason, it just took me so long to work out how to end it. Like it was one of these kind of games that was just very difficult to solve it. And I was teased incessantly by my friend Tom, who would often be there, who would be like, I just say, I just say to him, Tom, Tom, this time you've got to believe me. I think I've solved the runtime problem, and he would just look at me, just shaking his head, like you know, you've not fixed it, James. You'll know you'll make <laughs> it one to run too long. You want to stuff so much stuff and get things going on in it. You'll never tolerate it being shorter than six hours. Um, so uh, yeah, and that and that kind of, and it was really there. That's that's kind of it was in that kind of gradual, slow development process that it kind of came from, and what yeah. I was mostly focused on for those years. So if somebody is coming into this right now and they don't know what Magnate the First City is, mm. uh, you're on a long elevator ride. What would your pitch be for it? How would you explain it? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, God, I feel like I've been writing lots of marketing material for Magnate and now I can't on the spot even give you an <laughs> elevator pitch. I feel, like I feel like I'm so burned out from pitching it. Um, okay, right. Well, what's the best way to, to describe it? Um, so, so it depends how long ago. I've only got someone a couple of seconds. Sometimes what I say to them is, it's the Euro game monopoly. Like the Hollywood high concept pitch version. That, yeah. that's, what I, that's what I would say. Um, uh, or I tell people that it's, it's a game where, um, it's a game that really feels like building a city where you actually have real 3D buildings. That's a big part that I emphasize on it. If I'm going to kind of describe it in general, I just say it's a game in which you're a group of property developers and you're trying to make the most money you can in a city going through a property going through a property boom. You buy plots of land. You choose what to build on that land um, from a range of different kinds of buildings. All the kind of things we'll be familiar with from SimCity: so retail, industrial, offices, homes, etc. Um, and you're trying to to unlike other games where buildings are kind of these automatic things that just do things for you, like in a classic Euro game. It's a game in which buildings are mere empty husks. They're like opportunities for for to make money, but that's kind of all they are. They're investments. And then you attract tenants to move into those buildings. And what begin, what that kicks off is a kind of organic growth process that sees a city very much as like a decentralized thing that's created by all the different participants rather than sort of managed directly by a mayor. And then, of course, that leads naturally, like all property booms, to an inevitable bust because there's kind of no way to avoid it. And when that crash happens, well, the, the game will end. And so that's generally how I, in those terms, that I, I think I described the game. So one of the big questions that always occurs to me when I introduce this game to people, and I say, this game is Magnate, uh, the first city, which is, I usually just refer to it as Magnate. So what is so first about it? Because we're obviously, we're not talking about like Ur or Chattelhoyuk or something. Why is it the first city? So that's a very, very good question. So uh, I will give you the most brutally honest answer I can to that. So the first one is that part of it is that, it, is that I was desperate to get City into the title. There were so many games on Board Game Geek that had Magnate already in the title. 
And sure. I felt like it just, just to differentiation, it desperately needed some subtitle. And I spent ages trying to work out, well, how would you get a good subtitle in? Like, I felt like Magnate City Builder sounded kind of a bit lame to me. And I wanted it to sound a little sure. bit more, have a bit more of prestige, like it was making a bit of a pronouncement about something, like it had something to say. And so I ended up landing on first for actually two reasons. One, which uh, first more in the sense of preeminence rather okay. than kind of being first chronologically in any sense. Sure. So I just want to give a sense of like the sort of, this is like the first city building game you would want out of all the others in some sort of subtle way. And secondly, I thought very arrogantly from the very beginning, I'm like, you know what, either this is going to do okay, maybe, and then it's going to sell a few copies and then, you know what, I've ticked a bucket list item and whatever, or it could do really, really well. And if it does really, really well, then maybe what it has is potential for quite a lot of expansions. And I thought, well, what if Humbleburg is only the first city of the oh. different cities that, that it could take place in, right? So I had this idea for an expansion, which I've been working on for some time, called Magnate the Metropolis, which, okay. would, be, uh, which, would, be, which would introduce uh, the mayoral elements into a game in which there's a kind of like an, there's like an automated player that like has, makes policy decisions that affect the developers that they can influence, but also could be a playable, completely asymmetric player who has a set of like um, uh, a set of uh, sort of electoral mandates that they're trying to fulfill by sort of working through the property developers to achieve their com their kind of uh, their goals. So um, it, it is a complete. It's I've been playing. I've been playing a little bit and designing with it recently, and it's like a it's it's, it's quite bonkers. But I think it could be uh, a really interesting expansion to it. So so I thought. And I also thought in the future possibility, well, maybe maybe I could pull the Monopoly trick and maybe we could have a kind of a New York version or a London version and and find different ways to take different urban forms around the world and use them to inspire kind of new expansion mechanics. So it sounds um, like you were using some of your advertising background as like subliminal manipulation to get me <laughs> to be interested in this game. Yeah, I think probably so. I hope so. At least hopefully they're not a completely ham-fisted way. Because the number of times people have just said, that's a stupid name to me. I'm like, <laughs> uh, maybe this whole strategy, this this clever strategy was not clever at all. So, um, but uh, but yeah, it's very interesting the number of, the amount of times I get that question. Yeah. So you sent me a prototype uh, copy a couple years back. I don't remember exactly. And it was, uh, I was struck by how finished it was. You know, usually mm -hmm. when people send me prototype copies, they're they're very you can tell that they're prototypes right they're mm. the, the pieces have been cut out themselves there's no miniatures you usually have to use pieces that were left over from some other game um but by contrast magnate you already had the three-dimensional uh miniatures um it, it seemed very finished and of course mm -hmm. there were some rough edges but it pretty much was done so you mentioned that it was in development for a long time so what is the time like uh What's the timeline like in there? Um, when did you begin designing it, and what was that process like? Well, uh, so as I said, the, the kind of very early stages of it was coming up with the very first version of the game in in 2011, and in October 2011, and and uh, and it was a very different game physically. So, in fact, so many things to learn at that point in time. I had this enormous board that was just absolutely gigantic. And when I say gigantic, it was two meters by one meter. It could only be played on the floor, and the Lego buildings were all like uh, maybe seven times the scale or more, or eight times oh, wow. the scale of the current game. And so there was like a skyscraper that was sort of like, it was a Lego skyscraper that was like a foot and a half tall that you could build <laughs> in the game. And of course, I was just like, yeah, you, you know that this is not at all practical to ever make this, right? And I'm like, ah, I'll shrink it down later. Just focus on making the cool Lego stuff for now. Um, so, uh, so, so, I, so it was a very kind of absurd game. And I remember the, the first time I played it with my friend Rob, I gave him a copy of the player aid and it was, it was like seven sheets of A4 stapled together. And we were halfway through the game and he was just, he was just forlornly and confused leafing through this endless player and going, okay, so if I build this kind of building, then maybe, oh, hang on a minute. Let me go back to page three. And I was like, oh no, I've overcomplicated this. Uh, like yeah. stare, staring, uh, staring at this, at this at this scene and realizing this was like the very beginning of this. What would be a kind of very long whittling process of just like smashing chunks out of this game with a hammer. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's kind of it's kind of started as this very bloated kind of project. It was just because I I really wanted to make make a board game. And, and to be honest, at this point, 
I thought, yeah, maybe one day this could become something, but I didn't really have any like immediate designs to publish anything or even even show this to a publisher to get them to do it. Like there was, it was like, it was even then I was closing, it was years away from doing that. It was just a hobby thing, really. Yeah. Um, so, and when then, people, and then I, so when yeah. people complain about the big box or about mm. the, the chunky miniatures, if only they knew. Yeah, if only they knew. This is the this is this is like the portable version. This is the travel yeah. version compared to this how it started. Pocket, this is pocket magnate. Yeah, and, and I genuinely think like uh, that is a partly influence on the size because it did genuinely start as this just absolutely monstrous game that put a lot of emphasis on the the physicality and three dimensionality of the experience. And so it, it really is what remains is the, the fastly cut down to at least as far as I felt in 2019, the smallest I could make it while still capturing capturing some of that spirit, I think. Sure. Um, so, yeah, not not massively practical. So it's really interesting when people say, like, oh, my God, the box is so big and there's only bits. And I'm like, <laughs> you really don't know half of it, right, compared to what it was before. <laughs> this just seems like this is, this is the compact version. This is like the card game version almost, you know, in that right. sense. So given the importance of uh, the crash, so uh, speaking, of course, of the end game housing crash that will end the game, um, was that always a part of the design or was that something that was worked in later? It's really interesting. So the concept was pretty much always a part of the design. It, it to me, was something that felt like so natural. It, it was, it, I just thought, well, why are there no property games that don't that involve a property market crash? Like, it seemed very strange yeah. to me that that, that, well, that didn't exist because it felt like, well, there's so much opportunity for drama in this. There's so much opportunity for, for people to be like, will it, won't it? The kind of ultimate push your luck scenario that would thematically fit in perfectly with this, that would let you explore ideas and satirize things and play with stuff around the edges in terms of the, the experience you're crafting. And how the players participate in that experience. You know, you've got game theory, you've got prisoner's dilemmas, you've got all of this really exciting, all of these kind of exciting interaction ideas. And um, it just felt like it, well, it, what other way would it end? Like it, it felt so natural. Um, mechanically, however, ah, oh, it was very much like the, what the final version of it, the number of iterations to get to that were just absolutely vast. So many different things. Originally, for example, at one point in the game, there was like a really kind of idea of a global economy that was tied into it. So like global economic events occurred from an events deck and they kind of shaped what was going on locally and also they contributed to the crash. But but that, that was a bit of a problem because then the players were, they didn't seem like they had as much a thematic obvious reason to have so much agency because sure. they were more at the mercy of it. By, by definition, it felt like weird to have, oh, it's all determined by the global economy, but also the players get to decide it. It's like, well, it doesn't seem to make a tremendous amount of sense. So... um so it went through a lot of mechanical iterations, but um, uh, but but certainly that that idea of that crash was very very central from the very from very early on. Well, that, I'm glad to hear that because one of the things that I love about the game, of course, is that players uh, have so much control over when the crash happens, but it's very tenuous control, right? Mm, that, yeah. That, that when you go through that housing market section of the game, you go through each of those little steps and all of those are influenced by the players. Mm. Um, but then the cards you draw that determine when the crash is coming, uh, you, you, you might know the distribution in there. You might have you kind of counting those cards, but you can't be 100% certain. Um, and, and I could see the way that... Uh, that reining it in from a global economy really would help the game mm. uh, gain some focus. Oh, completely. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that, that is exactly how I feel about it. That you, you want to have, well, so how, how do you maximize the degree to which the players have influence and yet they really cannot collectively determine the outcome? They will still, they still need to feel at the mercy of events. You yeah. know, I wanted those card draws to feel like, you know, someone is like either exhilarated or just crushed by what's coming off the top of that deck, and I think um, that that to me seemed seemed so vital that it, it had it had to work that that kind of way. It had to be a mechanic that would do that. So, where does that crash come from? So, was it inspired by, you know, obviously the big event in our lifetimes would be the two thousand and eight housing crash, um, which uh, sort of like in the game wasn't it was of course. I don't want to minimize it. It was terrible for so many people, yeah. but the speculation and subprime lending that caused that uh, were f for some people very beneficial. 
um, myself included, actually, because we bought our house in 2009 for like nothing. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah, completely. So so where does that idea of the crash come from? Was that influenced by 2008 or what put that in your head? So it's really interesting. So 2008, definitely. Well, if we think, yeah, if we go right back to 2011, the kind of first time I come up with this game. Um, then obviously it's still very recent history, economic history in that sense. So it certainly had its influence. I think I've always been very interested in that kind of economic history. So to me, I'm very interested in like the Great Depression. I'm very interested in what happened in Japan as well from in the 1980s and 90s and how their property market completely collapsed and watching all of these different places that have, you know, I think even um, Renaissance. Um, Florence went through something a bit similar, where you have these like absolutely absurd valuations uh, that that places reach because people just begin to, you know, these economic bubbles seem to recur through history, where people have this this insane overconfidence that this one thing is worth so much. And you realize that it's it's this kind of coercive process where it's like, well, other people seem to think it's worth a lot, so it probably will keep going up, so let's all join in the bandwagon. Um, even if there, there actually is very little substance to the underlying sure. growth or demand. And so for that reason, I, 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 you know, I'm very interested in history. So for me, uh, all of those things felt very natural. And then, and, and I was actually thinking the same kind of thing happened as well in, in Britain in the early 90s as well, where there was a kind of, uh, during our recession in the early 90s, there was quite a big slump. And particularly, for example, there was uh, Canary Wharf was one of those things that, I don't know how much you, you know about Canary Wharf. It's this kind sure. of district of London, this sort of, this new financial district. And it went through this massive explosive growth in the late 80s and, and 90s, where they built all these massive office buildings. And this recession hit. And then suddenly, no one wanted any of them. And they just lay completely unused and, and empty. And, and, and the main building there, which was the tallest building in Britain at the time, one Canada Square, was sort of seen as this great white elephant. Oh, look at all these developers. They're building all this empty stuff. And that was how people felt, you know, for a good, a good sort of 10 years that it took to eventually get to the point where that was now suddenly prime real estate that everyone wanted by the early noughties. And so it was kind of... There was a lot there, I think, that could influence this. And I thought, well, you want to take that. And because this is, you know, there's a lot of drama, we've got to just turn it all the way up to 11, where, you know, you don't just like, oh, no, we lost 20% of the valuation overnight. <laughs> no, I want us to lose up to, you know, 80% of the value, 90% of the value, something that will be, you know, will, be, will feel really decisive. So as you note, of course, this is a big deal when it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned 80%. We have actually seen like a hundred and something percent crash where the crash happened to drop us below the original market value, the original $300,000 <laughs> for a plot of land value. Um, and, and I've noted a, that a few critics have uh, seemed to feel that this is invalidating. You know, mm. that this is uh, all, all the actions that you've taken before don't matter compared to this big crash. Um, what would you respond to that? So I think that it's very interesting. So I'm, I'm going to be at the risk of being incredibly controversial. Um, I'm going to, to preface this by saying it feels like it, one of the fascinating things about hobby board games is that it, it's, it's obviously a space where there's a lot, of, a lot of critics who are, you know, writing quite intelligently or talking quite intelligently about things, but a lot of people who make a lot of assumptions about how things work sort of straight away without really spending time thinking about it because they look at the mechanic and go, oh, I've seen this mechanic before. It must work like this. And one of the things that I find so interesting about, about this critique is is that um, I think it's, it's not a brilliant critique because in my experience, it just doesn't, isn't borne out. And actually, it's deliberately the point that the crash feels more dramatic than it actually is in terms of how fair the game is. And that is actually by design, because I want to give people drama, and I want to give people a sense that this really matters, and I want everyone to feel caught up in, oh God, what's going to happen? But at the same time, I don't actually want to leave the players all feeling like it was all terribly unfair. And in the vast number of games we play, it isn't actually such a deciding factor. It is deliberately a little bit of an illusion, because actually, Mm -hmm. if you play the game, if you have two evenly matched players who are both pretty good at predicting, even if they make different decisions either way, they can hedge their choices, and they'll often end up with actually quite similar values at the very end of the game. And it's one of these things where, yes, it is true that actually if you were both perfectly matched and one of you goes one way and one of you go, makes the prediction the wrong way and it, and it was a true 50-50 chance either way, then yes, you can say, well, it came down to a coin toss. But that to me just seems like a um, really just an example of the classic problem with all chance in games, 
which is that mm-hmm. if we say, oh, well, if you're completely, if two players play equally well and they're evenly matched and there is any element of chance, that's always true. That's never, that's never not true of any game that involves some element of any kind of output randomness. Sure. So it, it, it's really, I think it's quite funny because I'm like, well, actually, the trick I felt like I was playing was to make this feel more important than it actually is to drive the enjoyment of the game the most while preserving people's egos a little bit after the game is over. Whereas people have immediately seized on it and they've, got, they've made to me, I think, the overly obvious critique of thinking, oh, well, it's terribly unbalanced. And I'm like, show me the evidence of how many plays when people have made good predictions. Show me how many people really feel put out by it. And actually, and generally they don't because they go, oh, no, I made a mistake. I should have sold the round before because actually if I thought hard enough about the distribution of the risk cards, I thought hard enough about what X was likely to do, it was more or less probable to happen. Um, and so as a result, what's been fascinating is you end up with this critique on both sides of it, which is one which where people go, uh, no. It's, it's, it's too random, it, the crash decides everything, that's bad. Or they go, no, the crash is too predictable, all the players can always work out when it's going to end, it's bad. And I'm like, well, I don't think it's either of these, actually. I think it genuinely is something in the middle, but there are just some people for whom their taste is just never going to align to that slightly chaotic mixture that it, that it chucks into the equation. Sure. So we had one game just to to give our listeners an example. So you have a track that counts down from 10 to zero. And when you hit zero, the market will crash and the value of property is going to plummet. Um, We had one game where we drew so many zeros that I think we were three rounds in and that track was still at a six Mm. or a seven, even something, something like that, something very high. And so nobody was seeing this crash coming. And, and just on chance, I decided that I would sell most of my properties um, and because I was holding on to too many and you only have so many actions around and we crashed hardcore on that draw. (laughs) And so I won by some, you know, preposterous amount. Um, Now, obviously I play with people who are all very uh, experienced players. So this wasn't like uh, some big deflating moment. It was a funny Mm. moment. It was exciting. Mm. You know, everyone was going, ah, we should have predicted this sooner. Um, but I, I have found that that happens, uh, that when you get to, when you get down below five or so mm-hmm. on that track, that the game slows down a little bit, especially as you are approaching those, uh, ev- those evaluations of land value, because everybody is starting to say, well, okay, well, how many cards ha- have come out? How many of each value have come out? What does the market look like? And, and it feels more, you know, way more than Monopoly obviously, or most uh, games about land speculation, it feels like we're sitting there and trying to evaluate where the market's going to go. Um, Which to me is the entire point of the game. Completely. Yeah. Um, And, and I love that feeling. So I've been a little frustrated seeing some people have that, uh, that response. Now, some other people I've noted have, have criticized this game, um, as a poor critique of capitalism. Now, James, having worked in uh, as an advertiser, <laughs> so we could say as a partisan in favor of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you hoping to uh, What are you hoping to say about uh, maybe economic booms or about the uh, economic system we're working within? So that's a that's a very very good question because uh, and it, this is one that um, interestingly people don't ask me about very much, which I think is really interesting because to me this is one of the elements of playfulness of the game or a layer of playfulness of this game, which is actually really important to me. So uh, I am um, uh, I would say a cynic about capitalism in many ways, but I am a uh, but I'm I am certainly not uh, a a utopian revolutionary either. So uh, I I I have this feeling that where we see markets, they seem to be so organically spring up everywhere all of the time that there is something about a, a market orientated society which is to some extent inevitable. And I'm really interested in the idea of like the Keynesian idea of kind of the animal spirits. And the idea that somehow the kind of boom and bust cycle is is this sort of um, is a kind of inevitability somehow. And for me, sure. this is a really important part of Magnate. And I, why why I said it has to be the crash is inevitable. That, that at some point, these absurd asset values have to, will be corrected. And as much as everyone on the table is sitting around hoping, and I see players talking things like, "Oh, we can we can collude to stop it." 
to stop the crash happening as, as if this is a good thing. And I'm like, why, why would it be a good thing to have inflated asset values? This is, this is only good for a small number of people. Um, there is this idea to me that the idea that this is a sort of inevitable economic cycle is a, is a big part of the game. And, and I think, and, and I wanted the players to participate in that. I want them to be kind of, I, I want the players to be, um, what's the right phrase to use to describe it? To be complicit in the way the system works, to want mm. to see the explosion in values, to be like, oh, shoot, the values are shooting up and up and not thinking and stopping for a second to go, why are these values going up? I mean, it's like Humbleberg's growing, sure, but it's not growing that much. Why, why are these values going through the roof? And I, I want to be like, ah, who cares? We're making money. Why do we care about that? Right? That's a, it's an important thing for the pl- to, to, to bring the players to that, to that place and, 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 to, and to do that in a way that isn't too heavy handed. So I'm really interested in like satirical games. In fact, I went to a, in 2019, I went to a really interesting kind of workshop event at the British Museum where they looked at the history of board games. And uh, and before they were doing a a kind of, um, and particularly like games like Monopoly, for example. And and I learned a lot about the very early history of Monopoly, a lot more that I learned about, particularly the period once the Parker Brothers started creating it and where where it goes on from there. That was really fascinating. I don't have time for today, but it was such an interesting, interesting thing to learn about. And, and we talked a bit about the history of satirical games because there were lots of these satirical board games that the, the guy who was giving this lecture was very interested in and how a lot of them ended up falling flat because they were too heavy-handed in their satire. They were too making the players feel like, right, well, you're just a bad person. Do the bad thing. And, and, and that's one way to get someone to engage with something. But it's also, it stops the thing being a game because games on like a film or a, a pure narrative art have this problem where you can't just... You can't just satirize like that because the players have to have have an objective, have a goal, an incentive. And if you align the player's incentive perfectly with what you morally kind of the game is saying, this is evil, then you can't help but kill their entertainment completely. Sure. And, and I thought a much more effective game would be one in which it could play with these ideas without obviously coming down the fence and lecturing anyone. And, and that's why I feel like the closest we get to it is a making the players kind of complicit, but not in a way where we're going to beat them up about what's happening to the tenants. It was really important to me that, for example, you'll notice in the game that tenants don't get evicted. And we were thinking about having a power to do that. And we were like, no, this would feel really lame and horrible. Like, oh, I'm a okay. landlord. I could make more by evicting people. And I don't want to put people, put, put people in that situation. I would much rather have a, a Humbleberg that has secure tenure because I think then that just becomes, it goes from being playful and making people think about their motives to just being kind of nasty. And I sure. think that was that was a, cr- a critical thing for me. And I think the closer we get to it is that is the way that the companies have different personalities. Because I'd spent a lot of time, as it happens, learning a lot about property where I live in Croydon, uh, in South London, which in the last ten years has gone through like a huge construction boom of itself, and it's probably itself another influence on the game. And um, and I wanted, I knew a lot about how those companies worked, and I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to create like a um, something, a little backstory that we wouldn't even even you don't even need but it's just a bit of fun to have with that to kind of build out this world a little bit mm-hmm. um so yeah so as someone i think yeah i feel very aware of some of those problems not how you would solve them but certainly to make a game that would make people think about them a few commenters have uh, noted that we're in the middle at least in the united states i don't know if this is true in the uk we're in the middle of uh, what we would call a homelessness crisis mm-hmm and that any development is positive, even if it's highly valuated uh, development. Is that the sort of thing that you thought about at all in terms of, you, you know, you mentioned that you were uh, thinking and researching about development in Croydon. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say in response to that? So I think the this one is a really, oh, this is such an interesting issue. It's sort of one I stayed clear, a little bit clear of in Magnate in some ways, because I think it's... Um, it is quite a it is quite a problematic issue because it, certainly my reading of that politically is if you look at what happens certainly in lots of places let's say in London for example is a really good example you effectively have uh, multiple causes for this so one of them is that um, is that is that there isn't enough development and it's true to say that uh, and then sometimes it's blocked by the development w- would bring down prices is blocked by the very people that would sometimes be politically on the surface, be very progressive and liberal, but yeah, fine, but not when it comes to where my neighborhood, right? I don't, I don't want I don't want the social housing in my neighborhood. I just want there to be social housing. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, a definite thing where that, for example, in London, there are lots of very nice neighborhoods that are not allowed to be developed significantly. It's, if you look at like house building, for example, in the early half of the 20th century, um, in, in the UK, for example, at least, 
Um, it was it was absolutely massive. And part of the, re- the way that we, we housed people more effectively was just by building an absolute crap ton of, of, of property. Um, the, and that and that is and I and I actually a firm believer kind of in that because actually Croydon's really interesting because um, and I wish someone would do an academic study on it because it seems to be a good case study in that regard because house prices in Croydon have been relatively static and rental prices compared to most other parts of London have been relatively static and it's one of the only places where you're just allowed to build absolute crap tons of buildings so it has a very dense core with lots of residential buildings where developers have been very free to convert old office blocks build loads of things and so it seems to be a pretty good poster child for that side of things on the other hand what i also know about in terms of looking at developer practices is you know they pay uh, effectively consu- very highly paid consultants who work out how to constantly reduce affordable housing housing requirements in all the developments that they build um, and they deliberately are very careful with how they sell. They don't dump loads of property onto the market at once because they know it destroys value. So, for example, they deliberately follow practices where they release new properties in waves in order not to destabilize local markets. So they themselves, for purely commercial motives, are also involved in actually wanting, obviously, the highest value they can possibly get for their property. And so, you know, it's not like their their involvement is always benign. I think it's a it's a classic example for me where you need you what you need is so much investment behind it that much as they would try to optimize as much money as possible, you're actually um, able to drive prices down by just encouraging so much development. I mean, to my mind, a lot of the markets that work most efficiently for society are precisely the ones where the competition between people is so brutal and almost close to zero sum that effectively things are very cheap for almost everybody anywhere in any market where someone is making monster margin that is nearly always where the drivers of inequality are and mm-hmm. and unfortunately in property there's a lot of opportunity for that um in, in particularly in land speculation and as areas change rapidly and suddenly become very valuable and desirable so i think it's a it's a it's a it's a complex picture and in particular on homelessness it's a it's a real challenge because again if certainly in the uk I and mean, I, I live literally um a few doors away from a homeless shelter and one of the things that just is so clear to me is that it's a mixture of, you know, there are people who are temporarily homeless and they're homeless just because of the vagaries of the economy. And then there are a lot sure. of people who are homeless because actually they have so many challenges to them and problems that it's not a surprise that they struggle to integrate in a lot of what we regard as normal society. And so there's this, this, uh, and that's another reason why I think I felt in Magnet, I really didn't want to come down too hard on a thing because I was like, well, I don't feel, I feel like the more I learn about this, the more complex it is. I don't want to create a game that says, well, this is clearly what's going on because it's not, it's a really horribly complex problem. So would you say that Magnate uh, operates in a, in a situation economically? So you mentioned like Keynesian economics, Mm. where of course we put a lot of pressure on the demand side through government incentives. Uh, Do you feel that's reflected in Magnate or is Magnate almost the counter example to that? It's it's a funny it's this is where it, it's like a little toy world where those kind of macroeconomic <laughs> policies at the moment anyway don't really figure very much into it right like the idea that you would have like a government stimulus that would change the gameplay is something I'm actually exploring in that expansion because I think there's some really interesting opportunities I love the idea of a mayor player who has wants to get things done but doesn't have the power to directly build things and so has to just encourage sure. through policy like i have this idea that they would have like control of a tax policy where they would be able to generate more revenue for their coffers to spend on building things like schools or hospitals which you'd place as tiles in the game that would improve the areas but they would uh by lowering income that lowering taxes on different types of tenant they would increase the number of tenants that would arrive every turn in the city so there would be this constant process of negotiation with the developers around like, okay, well, if you promise to build in this area, because I I have a I have a, a policy um, promise to increase total number of jobs to X, then I'll lower taxes. But you guys got to promise to build me some offices. And, yeah. like, <laughs> and, I, and I like the sound of, I like the idea of that because that's, I spent a lot of time. So one of the other things I've, I've done in my quite varied career is I ran in, as a kind of in my spare time while I was doing my software stuff, I ran a newspaper and it was a local newspaper for my local area in Croydon. And I spent a lot of time therefore learning a lot about how the council works. And it seems very obvious. It's like, this is what's going on all the time where they're constantly like trying to persuade developers to like nudge them towards, please do this thing for us, or we will give you some incentives if you can just promise to build X thing. And, th- and that they are quite impotent in terms of their power to transform the environment. And they're constantly working through private interests. And I think there's something 
I feel like there's a lot of interesting play and negotiation space there. Sure. Well, and that's one thing that stood out to me in Magnate is that, you know, so you mentioned like the four, uh, so you've got residential, retail, industrial, offices, which kind of is the same metric that we've seen since SimCity, right? Oh, very much so. And, but the one thing missing from that, of course, is services mm. that uh, we sure hope Humbleburg never has a fire. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or a crime surge, because there's no infrastructure for dealing with anything like that. Um, so you've mentioned multiple times this desire to uh, let your player, let your players uh, be in this sandbox, be in this toy box, l- maybe learn something, but also balancing fun, not hitting them over mm-hmm. the head with this message. Uh, how did you go about doing that? Was there ever a point where it was too too empty of a message or that it was too not fun how did you balance that that's a, it's a really good question i i think i found it like a very natural and intuitive balance all the way through and obviously you know whether or not people feel like it's achieved that is ultimately you know up to them to decide i think for me um the thoughts like very intuitively i feel like i'm someone who has a very keen sense of when i'm being hit over the head with some moral lecturing and it's something that i find in in particularly in a lot of contemporary film and television i find very dry i'm a huge sure. believer in in show not tell and i think like so i used to i used to do, used to do a bit of filmmaking and was kind of very interested in some screenwriting and things as well and for me that was always like something i was very passionate about and i so i always react very badly like when i see shows that, that want to tell me things rather than show me things and i and i think so for me it was just trying to take an approach of like well look Whenever I felt like I was pushing too hard on the gas pedal for some of it, just like, no, 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 let up a little bit here. This doesn't need to be as obviously on the, on the nose as this. Um, it was not something that was required. And there were little times changes. Like, I think when I was really interested in it being more of a rich demographic simulation, I went down a more SimCity route where I started to, like, segment the citizens by wealth. And then I was I mean, like, sure. oh, mm, that's that could be interesting, but I think that could be really feels bad as well. Like if sure. what, like like what 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 are we saying the sociological impacts of the poorer residents are? Is that something we're going to start engaging with? And like, are we? Am I going to need to start really having a, like a not just a theory of like property and economics, but I need a theory of poverty now as well? And I'm like, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Right sure. in this in this game. So there were definitely times where I, I had to like it was it was those kind of choices where I'd step back and go, you know what? Let's segment the people in the houses by life stage rather than by, um, because that's still a very useful, meaningful, thematic, demographic way of understanding people. Right. It really helps. But it's not one that's going to open up a whole load of uh, political discussions that I felt like there was enough there already to explore and play with. Right. Well, it kind of simulates it anyway, especially with those advanced tenants. Yes. Um, Like, for example, uh, so there's three types, right? So there's families, which tend to be very high income. Um, there's professional couples, which are a bit, they're, they're, you know, medium income, but they, and they kind of help out the neighborhood, but then you've got, um, students, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which nobody wants to house students. <laughs> you don't get any rents from students, really. It's very minimal. Yeah. And, um, we were playing a game where my, where three people happened to decide to go big into residential all at the same ah. time. <laughs> and this is where the game's press your luck element really came to the fore. Because so the game is a press your luck game, both with that market and with that little tenant mini game that you play. Yeah. Um, where, you know, everyone was trying to be first so that they could scoop up the professional couples and the families. And my friend Jeff had a brand new unoccupied apartment complex that could fit <laughs> like five, you know, five uh, <laughs> groups of tenants. And he ended up with five students. <laughs> so he was making as much as one family yeah yeah and uh i think actually that was one of the moments that sort of busted him in that game yeah. because he was he was not getting that money to seed into more uh investments um so that does end up being reflected a little bit but i like what you're saying about life phase instead of uh outright wealth demographic well, completely. And it gave us a really interesting thematic opportunity as well for like to layer on things that could then be an interesting from a gameplay perspective. So it was interesting to me to think, well, and I've, I've found games that I've been able to do this quite successfully, where I'm like, well, actually, in like the mid to late stage of the game, I don't really care that much about rent. And so fine, I'll miss out one turn of rent. That could be really important. But if I can fill to five students and flip it straight away for capital value, 
then potentially that's still a pretty great reward, particularly if I've not had to bid yeah. aggressively to get them. Whereas someone like an interesting the family thing is really interesting because it's a plus bonus to residential. The most common effect of that is that you tend to give away a bonus to an to a, to an opponent because yeah. you're they're more likely to be you know you're already built next to let's say uh, the little playground area. Well. They're going to suddenly come, but great! You've got a family moved in. That's great. That's plus one dice roll, plus one value for me, who I'm inevitably going to move in next door. So, uh, and then with the professional couple being like a middle level of rent, where it was affecting something completely asymmetric, and I felt like that was a really fun way as well to like play with those ideas. Uh, I mean, the advanced tenants were very much in it from the very beginning. They were part of the, one of those features that I had to slim down and think, well, all right, maybe we'll make like a basic side in order to really empower a tutorial game and make the game just find every way we could to decrease the weight a little bit for less experienced gamers. Yeah. Uh, and But then crucially, having... Because my assumption was this, that every like basically every regular board game geek user was going to go, advanced rules? Well, I always play advanced rules straight away because I'm terribly good at these things. And they were just going to play with them straight away anyway. <laughs> that was my figuring of the psychology of why we made that the advanced game. Was they just go, I'm already smart enough for this, and they'll just do it anyway. And then the timid people would go, well, that's not for me because I'm a bit worried about these kind of big heavy games. And, that, and then sort of self-select themselves into, into playing with the basic tenants to get their head around the concepts for a game that was likely to be quite heavy compared to what they were used to. Well, I'm guilty because I, uh, <laughs> I, I did skip straight to the advanced rules when the final game arrived. Yeah. Um, so, so, of course, you mentioned that this idea that, you know, if you put in a family, you're probably handing a bonus to somebody else. So that, mm. that you've created this game with these layered and overlapping incentives was that always also a big focus uh, of the game? You know, as it is in development, where you know things like your property values uh, and nearby. You know, uh, one of the reasons we moved into our house is because we just going straight up this street. We have three schools. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, completely. Oh, very much so. Well, this is a really interesting thing. So, I, I think one of the things that I've, I've very much realized from early on and became only more conscious of is that I am very broadly speaking, very much a theme first kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So for me, I would much rather take a real world thing and go, well, how do we make a game out of this? than I would start by trying to make a game first. And that's because I I think it's an oblique creative angle. If it's different, it hasn't been done before quite a certain way. It's likely to just, you can just trust the process to force you in interesting mechanical directions. If you've got a starting point, it's like the creative constraint. It's like, well, how do you make a property market come to life? Well, it's probably not going to be exactly anything that exists in a game already for the simple reason that no one has quite done that. So you're going to have to find some novel solutions, which will push you into being mechanically creative. So I think for me, it was like, well, the whole... To me, like the kind of essence of what cities and property is about is all about location, location, location. So if it's all about location, well, that's great because board games, this is just a wonderful opportunity because board games have this can have this rich spatial property. Like I've always thought that you can load on a lot more to spatial logic than you can onto like abstracted logic sure. for most for most players, kind of players. So as a result, it was like, well, that's those that's like a match made in heaven where we can we can exploit the thematic ideas about. Um, adjacency and location, and then uh, that will naturally create a large decision space because every kind of game that I've ever played that knows how to drive, that's really screen the value out of out of adjacency and spatial properties has a rich decision space. Right. So that that was kind of the the logic behind that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so this question comes from uh, someone who uh, enjoys Magnate. This is my friend Evan. He mm. want and this is a little confrontational, James. So I oh. want you to oh, bring it I want on. You to brace. I'm, I'm excited. I'm I'm in the brace position, and I'm very excited. Okay. He 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 asks, and I quote: "Why did you put everything good into the expansion?" <laughs> oh my god! Amazing. Um, and he's really... referring, of course. the The main thing is that he he yeah. regards, and I, I somewhat agree with him. I think this is important. The variable turn order bid. Mm to be very important to making Magnate work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you asked me this, because I thought you might. And so that was <laughs> after reading your review of Magnate, I was like, oh, I, I bet we're going to talk about this. I'm actually quite looking forward to it. Um, so that's so that's really, a really good thing. So let's talk about that. So I guess we just review what's in the Tycoon expansions. So I'm guessing that he's talking about the expansions. There's the three things in the Tycoon expansion. So you've got the um, the blind bidding rules that have this, this variable turn order. You have the employee cards where you can kind of pick up these different slightly wacky asymmetric powers that let you 
uh, they let you do things that, that you do things differently to other players. And then you've got the uh, apartment tower. So um, let's go in reverse order through those. So the apartment tower, I would say it's cool. I'm guessing he was thinking less about that when he was talking about yes. all the good stuff. Yes, it's it's a nice. It, it kind of raises the ceiling on residential, but it's not crucial, right? Uh, exactly. It's it's like uh, it's very much like a like it's the only level three building, and kind of the apartment building is already a bit of a level one point five building. So I think yeah. that kind of that that kind of kind of makes sense. The employee cards. Um, so to me, that is a very obvious reason to leave them out. So I'm a really strong believer that the core of the game has so much going on in it. Certainly, it's a game that anyone says to me now, even after the insane number of hundreds and hundreds of times I've playtested it, if someone says, do you want to play a game Magnate? I just go, yes, straight away. Because it's a game <laughs> that I still really, really enjoy playing. So although I, I often play with the employees, you can play a core game with me. You can even play basic tenants, and I will enjoy it. I generally pick advanced tenants nearly every time. I yeah. Personally, if I've got the choice, I will pick the advanced tenants, of course. But... Um, uh, but I will play that game because I think there's so much rich interactivity. And I find my brain is over overloading with decision space before I even touch the employees. When I really sure. think about really properly about which really are the best sites. And, and also think about playing the other player as well. Like, that's a huge thing. Like the people I play with have very different styles. So so already that that means that I think there's enough there. So the employees to me seem like so that they very much were designed quite late in the process. And they were literally a product of, right, what could we build an expansion? that would be not just like extra Kickstarter crap, that would legitimately could be really cool and interesting, that would fit naturally as a modular chunk into what we have. And uh, and we could potentially explore later on as well. So I, I actually, we've been working on other employees as well. So um, in expansions too, a lot more rich to space, I think, there to explore. So for me, I would leave those out very straightforwardly just because I just really don't think they're necessary. And to me, they're very much the kind of thing that I think most players shouldn't really even be picking up employees until at least there are a few games in. Because there's enough there. And I feel like maybe a lot of people are so used to heavy games where there's like an infinite number of levers that you can pull. And of course, it makes Magnate into more one of those more heavy Euro feeling things where you've got loads of those big levers that you can pull with employees. Um, the bidding is so interesting. I found this unexpected. So we did quite a bit of testing with the, with the bidding and the blind bidding. And we found in our playtest that generally speaking, blind bidding was close to universally hated. Mm. And uh, it was really interesting. And the reason why was because it created, and it's all to me about uh, atmosphere and banter. So it created a like a much, a much more quiet atmosphere that was a lot more low energy. So people, because you're privately picking the bid amount and then you're all simultaneously revealing, meant that you're, you, it was like a much quieter process that became very brutal and mathy from the point of view of even more than the game is already mathy from the point of view of like deciding exactly what the bids should be and was very tough for new players to work with. And the conventional bidding system is something where there was a lot more obvious uh, drama stakes and a possibility for fun because there was a lot more bidding up each other and going, Oh, I see your bid. I know what you're trying to do. There's a lot of opportunity for like table talk, creating a lot more of a rich interaction. And so everyone played it with said, look, I'm sure there's no question that the blind bidding system is fairer. It is fairer. Like if you want to play the game to the highest level in terms of bidding, bidding, the crucial, the crucial elements of bidding order and to reduce the randomness as much as you can, then blind bidding, I completely agree, is the way forward. But it was so not new player friendly from my point of view and so sure. lacking in the, the atmosphere that I felt like, well, the base game needs to be the more accessible atmosphere. And that's why we went with that one. But since seeing the level of response of the number of people, because your, your friend is not alone, the number of people who said, <laughs> like, what the hell? The blind bidding is strictly better. This is functionally just a strict improvement. You need this in your life. Has actually made me explore with my developer Jaya whether we actually release the blind bidding rules officially as a freebie expansion. Oh, okay. where, where we we do it as a PNP because the actual components you you really need for it are very simple. You can do these rules. You know, with money held behind your back, or with a simple little, you could just print off a little thing with a turn or replace your sure, sure things on. I think we're going to do that because I actually feel like there. Are, I had antici- under underestimated the number of probably veteran gamers who would really want that experience more than and would value that more than what I probably personally value in terms of the table atmosphere. Sure. And I think it's such an easy win. I think I'm going to release it so that everyone who gets it feels like, well, even if I get the base game, I can still have that at that part of the experience. 
Well, so James, thank you for joining me today. Now I'm gonna, I have one more question for you. Oh, please. Uh, but before I ask, uh, I actually reached out to a friend of mine who works at the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Oh, and uh, and she has uh, she has asked that we uh, we are going to have a donation link um, on this uh, episode because, of course, we're talking about real estate development, which is bound up in issues that impact all of us on a day to day level. Fantastic. Especially if you have a home or don't. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Very much so. Um, so we're going to have a we're going to have a link. What what the point of the National Alliance to End Homelessness is for is that in the United States, uh, you may know that we had a census last year, um, in which the result of that census was that currently in the United States we have around five hundred and eighty thousand homeless people, so mm, over half wow. a million, um, and surprisingly. For every individual, there are currently 29 vacant houses. That's right. There are 17 million vacant homes in the United States. Oh, my God. So did you say 29 vacant homes per homeless person? That is correct. Mind-blowing. And because uh, 30% of homeless people are in a family situation, it's not like we need one house per... Yeah. Homeless person. So the National Alliance to End Homelessness does a lot of things that help connect homeless people uh, with programs that can help them. Often those will include things like rental assistance, eviction protection, um, hotels to housing programs, and of course, rapid rehousing, which is where the goal is to get somebody out of a homeless situation within 30 days of becoming homeless. So that because then it lets them apply to jobs. Most many jobs require an address before yeah. you can actually apply successfully to a job. So it's very hard to get a, a career going if you're homeless. So we're going to put a link uh, to National Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, feel free to research them or other homelessness assistance um, in your country, if you're not in the United States, or even if you are, something maybe local instead of a, a national group. But we're going to be including that on this episode uh, just because you know we're going through a, a hard economic time. And... I, I know some people personally who are going through a hard time, uh, and I'm sure everyone uh, knows somebody that maybe you could reach out and help them, especially with the holiday season coming up. Uh, it's getting cold out there. Absolutely. Fantastic. I, I think this is a marvelous idea. So, James, here's the last thing I wanted to ask you. Um, what is your ideal? If, if somebody is going to sit down and play your game and it's your ideal situation – what do you want them at the end of that play to stand up and have gotten out of it? And it doesn't have to be one thing. Uh, what what experience or what questions, what do you want them thinking when they're finished with your game? Oh, that's such an excellent question. I think first and foremost, I want them to have just got a profound sense of joy from the whole experience. And I think that would come from mostly the sense of having uh built something and seeing having seen something that you've collectively watched emerge at the table of the sure. city that that profound sense of that that i think would be would be fantastic but they feel like they had their their brain pushed quite hard and that they would be able to, to to point to where they think they if they didn't win or maybe if they even if they did win they did a win or lose can point to the point that they thought was a pivotal decision and that to me is a really important aspect that a lot of my favorite games have is the ability to go oh Damn it! If I'd only done X, that could have transformed <laughs> that. And I think that's and that, because often it is a game on a knife edge. And I think that to me is is what I you know I'd love to see them if they take that away from the table and having had this kind of like and and, and probably at the end of it, I imagine them feeling a little bit of a slight sense of relief washing over them, like the yeah. sense of oh that dramatic moment of the crash is over and oh, you know that was a that was a big moment and we're all <laughs> through it and we're now feeling we're a bit exhausted but feeling really good. And I think like that's the to me is like the ideal set of emotional end state to a game of Magnate. Great. Well, thank you, James, for giving us some of your time. Uh, it was great getting to know you better. Thank you very much. It was delightful. Where can people find you? 
Right, so, oh, lots of places. So we just launched a new Nailer Games official Twitter account. We brought someone on board recently called Alex. She's really good at social media stuff. So she that's at play, at play Nailer Games on Twitter. Um, if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Nailer James on Twitter. And I'm very happy just to, you know, at me in anything, send me DMs. My DMs are open. So if anyone wants to have a chat to me uh, about anything game related or whatever, feel free to fire them my way. Um, and uh, and in general, if you just, they just look for Nailer Games on Google, we're pretty well ranked for that, thankfully. So we come up at the very top. So uh, and then they can check out Magnate more there, and then uh, and then the, uh, my other projects, including board games, the board game, the card game, which will hopefully be going on to Kickstarter next year. So um, yeah, so those are really the best places to get hold of me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. As always, uh, I am Dan Thoreau, and thank you for joining us.